You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Open your Bibles to John 8, which is found on page 522 in your pew Bible. Now hear the word of the Lord from John 8, 31 to 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is in God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, we are, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not speak, seek, of my, seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we, uh, we had quite the passage here in front of us, um, and uh, I'm kind of already gassed from doing that and then talking already, and, then, and so we're just going to pray and, and go. Father, we come to your word because your word is true. We are in a world of, of lies and falsehoods. There is nothing out there that is reliable that isn't tethered in your word, and so we come to the solid rock. We come to the word that endures forever. It says the, gla- the ga- gla- grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord, help us now to build our lives on your word. We trust you, spirit, be at work in me as I communicate, as I proclaim the truth of the gospel, and to be at work in the listeners, to open our ears, to, to, to soften our hearts, God, that we would prove to be truly your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're picking back up in the Gospel of John. We've had a bit of a detour um, over the last few months, kind of doing some some sermon series that are targeted to specific things. Now, I'm excited to be back in John's Gospel, and and specifically John chapter 8. But here's the deal. John chapter 8 is one of many, many of Jesus' contentious conversations, and we are getting plopped right back in the middle of it. Um, I don't think until recently, until recent years, I didn't realize how much conflict was going on in the gospel stories of John. I thought Jesus was just this cool dude, chill, got along with everybody, nice guy. And it turns out there is a collision course between Jesus and the world and so this, this is a reality that we have to embrace, that because the truth is what the truth is, it will always be in conflict with lies, which is why Jesus' ministry, I would say here, what's the marker of Jesus' ministry? Contention. That's it. Like, it's full of grace, full of truth, but that ministry ran a post. Now, Jesus says a lot of hard things, and today, these words that Jesus says, I mean, he's literally going to say, your dad's a devil, Like, that's a hard pill to swallow. Jesus says a lot of really hard things, and a lot of times, modern readers come to this and say, come on, Jesus. Dude, just chill out. Don't be so abrasive. Aren't you trying to save souls here? It's like we have this idea that we know the way that Jesus should do ministry, and we try to kind of explain what he said away. Well, I'm not going to do that. Because Jesus said what he said. And while people are certainly offended almost every turn and corner of Jesus' ministry, it's not because Jesus is being facetious. It's not because Jesus is being intentionally or, or unnecessarily inflammatory. This is the natural collision of truth and lies. And Jesus, we're told in John chapter 8, I know this goes back just a little bit, in John 8, 28, Jesus says that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What Jesus is saying, 
that every second, every word, every, everything about his ministry was doing exactly what the father wanted him to do, exactly the way the father wanted him to do it. And that meant there was conflict. Now, I think I'm just realizing this. We just live in a contentious time. And I think a lot of people look at, like, I want to be a part of church that just stays under the radar. And if we're going to be faithful to the word, that's just not a possibility. Like, we, we are, there's antithesis. There's, there's challenges. There's opposition here. And one of the things that we see here as, as it promotes this or stirs this contention, this conflict up, is the fact that Jesus has been testifying to the truth of his identity that he, in fact, is the Son of God. And so far through John, we don't have time to kind of do the whole recap of it, but Jesus has deployed two of the seven I am statements um, in John chapter 6, John chapter 8. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Now, these, these um, I am things, there's significance here because um, what Jesus is saying, he's making connections to like Moses, for example, the, the bread uh, with the manna coming from heaven, um, the light, the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. Jesus says, I am the true and ultimate rendition of those things. And as Jesus is making these claims about who he is, the Jews are becoming increasingly hostile towards Jesus and to his message because he's not only saying that I'm claiming that as if he's claiming to be better or, or greater than Moses, which he is. He did that um, in, well, I think chapter 7, actually even chapter 8. Um, and now we see him saying, I'm better than Abraham, which would be, be like the equivalent of a modern politician standing up at a, a rally and saying, I am better than George Washington. Like that's the kind of reaction that the Jews would have. Abraham, Moses, their heroes, and Jesus comes on the scene saying, I'm better. And not only is he saying that he's better than Abraham and Moses, he's claiming that he himself is God. This is the significance of the I am statements. Um, there are seven formal ones, and then we see a few more pop in here and there that are sort of subtly slipped in. But these I am statements are a connection back to, to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God comes to Moses in the burning bush, and he tells him, I'm going to have you go deliver my people from slavery of sin, right? They're under Pharaoh's reign. And, and Moses asked the question, well, who, if I go back and do all this and say that, that I'm going to deliver them, who should I say, what's the name of the God that's sending me? And God says, I am who I am. This is the reference that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying, I am. He's, he's using that language to connect himself and say that I am truly God. I and the Father are one. Now, the Pharisees, there's a lot for them to be offended about. And, and it's not because Jesus is lying. Jesus is telling the truth. It's not because Jesus is a bad communicator and they just misinterpreted what he's saying. The problem with what's going on here lies ultimately with the listeners. It's, it's not like we can go say, well, Jesus, if, if you're really trying to save souls, I, I know the truth is the truth, but maybe you could have said it this way and not that way. The problem here does not lie with Jesus and his communication skills. The problem lies with the listeners. The people are at odds with Jesus because they don't hear his words. They don't understand. It lands on their eardrums, but it doesn't register. This is exactly what Jesus says in verse 47 of John chapter 8. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. 
Now, what we see going on here between Jesus and the Jews, the Pharisees, is something that we see still going on today. Now, the difference is as the church proclaims the message of the gospel, as we hold fast to the word of God, we're not like Jesus in the sense that we can err in our presentation. Like we can say the truth in a way that, I don't know, sometimes gets misconstrued. But the truth is the truth and it needs to be spoken. And when it's spoken, a lot of times people today push back off. It causes that conflict. And, and the reason for this is because Jesus' words have a polarizing effect. You, you hear them and you're either with him or you're against him. There's no neutrality. There's no Switzerland here. You either hear Jesus' word and move toward belief or you move away from Jesus deeper into unbelief. As the saying goes, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. It's like it, the truth is the truth. The truth is the truth as it is. The sun is the sun, but depending on what the object is that it lands on will determine its effect. It'll either melt the ice, melt hard hearts, or it'll harden us today comes down to this. What effect does the word of God have on you? When you hear Jesus' words, what effect does it have? This is the whole, and I'm not just saying the red letters in your Bible, okay? Like Jesus specifically said certain things that we can quote, the historical Jesus said this. But because Jesus is God, all of the Bible is Jesus' words. Now, this is the whole premise of the conversation Jesus has in this big section of Scripture. It says in verse 31 that Jesus is speaking to believing Jews. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and I put air quotes on that. He's talking about what it means to be his true disciples. And here he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, the reason for the air quotes around the believing Jews is because one of the things that this passage is meant to show is that their belief is not a true belief. That's why Jesus says, if you are truly my disciples. And the further this conversation goes on, the, the, further, the, the more we realize that that is actually true. Now, it's not that they didn't have some sort of an effect when they came to Jesus or heard his preaching. It's very likely that they experienced some sort of emotional sort of stir up, that they got the goosebumps. They heard Jesus talk. They saw the loaves and the fishes multiplied. They saw the water to wine. They saw whatever it was, and they're like, whoa, something spectacular is happening. That probably happened. They, they might say, well, I, I like what some of these things that he's saying. So there's sort of maybe an intellectual assent to these things. But it is evident as this conversation goes on, this belief doesn't take root in their hearts. Romans 10.10 says, for with the heart the one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There has to be a presence of both. Right now, maybe they're, they're professing, but their heart has not believed. Now, this is a very uncomfortable distinction to make. Because Jesus, and Jesus is making it, the distinction between true disciples and false disciples. Verse 31 distinct, says the distinguishing factor of true disciples are those who abide in God's word. All right, that's why I asked you, 
what effect does the word of God have on you? And that word abide is something that we'll see used later on in John 15 when you get to the vine and the branch. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branch. He says, abide in me and I abide in you. And you see, what, what this abide language is meaning to hold fast, to remain in, to persevere, to stay rooted and there is this sense of life source that's wrapped up in this as, as, as the branch draws nutrients from the vine. So do we draw life from the word of God? Because what we need to see and understand, just as, as Peter did, he says, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's five, maybe seven, six, somewhere in there. He's like, my words are the solid rock for you to build your life on. This, this is the marker of a true disciple. Are you abiding in Jesus' word? Now, to contrast that, these false or temperamental disciples, did my voice just get louder? Okay, all right. I don't have to yell so much. These false disciples, temperamental disciples, what happens is they may start building on the word of God. These guys came to Jesus and say, hey, we believe. We hear you. We, you're, we're picking up what you're laying down. But eventually they veer away from it. They start building on the rock, but then it starts moving on to the sand. Now, this, this thing is not... Places like the four soils parable that Jesus tells is an example of this. Three of the four soils that Jesus tells us about are unfertile ground. That the seed doesn't take root, it doesn't grow. It's got signs of faith and then it expires. Another place would be Matthew chapter seven where you have these disciples, so-called disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, we've done all these things in your name. We've prophesied, we've done miracles. We've, we've told people about the gospel. And Jesus says to them, no, depart from me. I never knew you. See, you have people who, who think they are part. They think they're in. They think they're truly disciples but when the evidence is laid out on the table, it turns out they're not. It doesn't stick. Now, this veer that goes on of starting on and then building off, starting on the rock, building on now to the sand. This is, if I were to boil it down, this is, this veer is the cancer that is eroding mainstream evangelicalism right now. This idea of we started here on the word and now we're shifting off. This will lead to the church in ruins. Because you have people who think they are in with God, they are close to God, but they are truly far from them, far from him. Now I say this not to stick my nose up in the air and say, well, we got, I gotta figure it out. I don't say this from a place of pride because my heart is truly broken over this, truly broken. Some of my close friends who I, some of the most formative years of my life, people that I was like doing discipleship with, growing and learning together, I've seen them deconstruct, move away, apostatize. And it's not a small percentage of people, there's a lot of people doing this. And it's devastating. And so I don't say that out of pride, but out of humility. And I think here's the true marker of humility. What do you do with God's word? See, it's the proud, it's the arrogant who says, oh, I know God says that, but this is my way. This is what I want. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna reject that part. 
I'm going to reject those hard words. That's arrogance. That's pride. Humility says, Jesus, I'm taking you at your word. I believe in everything you say. Help me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's humility. And so though I stand up here confidently, don't get, don't get pride and confidence confused. It's a humble confidence that comes as we submit ourselves to the word of Jesus. And you know what? That humility, ultimately, it doesn't make us, it doesn't make us hate the enemy. It makes us pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Because Jesus told us, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That was kind of a tangent. It's important. Now, what I want you to know is that the economy of false discipleship, and it's a whole economy, all kinds of books published, all kinds of seminars, all kinds of weird stuff going on in the evangelical world, this economy of false discipleship runs on the currency of suspicion. This goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden to the first question that Satan asks. Did God really say? What is that? It's making humans question God's word if it's really true. And the same question's being unrolled today. Are there really only two genders? Is Jesus really the only way to the Father? Is marriage really only between one man and one woman? Is it true that only men can be pastors? Is it true that kids are really a blessing, not a curse? Is it true that God cares deeply about how you educate your kids? Is it true that abortion is murder? I'm just throwing out all the controversial things here, not to, not to make people angry, but to let you know this is where the fight is in our culture. So the reason why we talk about this from the pulpit, the reason why we talk about this in community is because this is where the fight is. And all through, you have a small understanding of church history. If you, understand, if you just think that wherever heresy popped up, we just like all through church history, wherever there's heresy, wherever there's false teaching, the church runs into it to combat the lies with truth because lives are at stake. That's why we stand on the word of God. Oh, I'm getting all riled up today. Now, if you reject God's word here with all those controversial things, and, and if you've got questions about this, I'm gonna say all that stuff. If you've got questions about those, me or any of the elders wanna talk to you about them. We're not like, boom, now do it or else. There's conversation to be had here. There's conversation to be had here. But if you begin rejecting words in some of these, what, auxiliary pieces, which they're not auxiliary, they're deeply rooted to creational design. They're deeply theological. If you reject Jesus' words here, how long till you reject all of it? See, it's a slippery slide. It is a slippery slide. Now, this is why I believe that's the trajectory of liberal Christianity. The trajectory of Christ liberal Christianity does not have a happy ending. And, and the way they operate is by, out of suspicion of the word of God, they gut it. They take the hard words out. They, they twist things to get their way. This is exactly what Satan did with Jesus when he was being tempted in, at the beginning of his ministry, twisting God's word to get what they want. And they twist it and they infuse it with like doctrine, with empty philosophies, vain deceits, human tradition, the things that the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2 to be aware of and not bite in on. And what we must do is see these things for what they truly are. It is a proud and haughty spirit. 
See, to, to, to push off Jesus' word, to ignore what God says, it is a proud and haughty spirit that does that. Now, that, that proudness and haughtiness is something that doesn't stop when you walk through these churches. We, we can all be guilty of proud pride and haughtiness. But there's a, a high-handedness to this kind of sin that will only wet, run in one direction, and that is towards destruction. For Pride comes before the fall. So I say all this to say this. True disciples, those who are truly Jesus' disciples, humbly receive God's word wholesale. You say, listen, there might be things that I'm rubbing against. Oh, this thing runs me the wrong way. I don't understand it. Well, our, our job is to move towards understanding. And, and not just to tweak it to get it to say what we want, but to conform to the word as it says it plainly, to be renewed by the word. This is why we as a church are a reformed church. We're not, we're not trying to like find the most, you know, uh, we're, we're not pragmatists in trying to find the way that works to do ministry, that, that'll just for this season of time work. No, we go back to the word of God and constantly are reforming according to the word of God, not the culture, not our feelings, not our preferences, the words of Jesus. Because why? Because true disciples, Jesus says in verse 32, know that his words are the truth and the truth will set you free. See, this is, this is the only, Jesus' words are the only alternative to the slavery of lies and deception, empty ideologies, vain deceit. It's the only alternative. If it's not Jesus' words, it's keeping you in bondage. Now, ultimately, this freedom that Jesus speaks is is, is a freedom of sin from sin and death. And in verse 51, he says this, truly, truly, if I say to you, anyone who keeps my words, he will never see death. But it's not just a, a freedom that comes after a point in history. It's a freedom that starts the moment of belief. He says, in this, if, if you believe my words, if you see that they're true and you hold a fast to this truth, your life right now will change. Become a life of love as the Bible defines it, not as the culture defines it. Number one, in verse 42, Jesus says, if, you were, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Now Jesus is pointing out like, if, if you really understood the truth, you would love the God of truth. But more than that, it goes on, in Galatians 5, it speaks, this, this is the sum, this is, the, um, this is the, the totality of the law being fulfilled. It says, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, this freedom that the Son brings is a freedom to love rightly. Now, if if the audience truly believed, like were true believers in the sense of Jesus, I think the response would look something like this. They would say, wow, Jesus, thank you. Will you tell us more? Help us understand. Will you give us some of this freedom that you speak of? I think that's what a, 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 a learning heart would sound like. But instead, they get offended. 
They get offended. Now again, it's not Jesus' fault they're offended. Verse 33, Jesus, uh, it says, uh, let me find it here. They answered, this is their response to Jesus after talking about freedom and being true disciples. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Now here's their argument. Here's here's the opposition that they put, put out. There's two significant things they say. One, we're Abraham's offspring. And two, they say we've never been enslaved. Now, both of those, one of them is not true, and one of them is partially true. Now, let me unpack those. Jesus actually refutes them in verses 34 and 38. So when there's lies being put out there, Jesus doesn't say, okay, whatever, and walk away. Like, he confronts them. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, and when he says truly, truly, he's speaking the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Now the bit about, they said about never being enslaved, that's straight up just revisionist history. Anybody who knows the Bible knows that's untrue. There's several places where they've been enslaved. You've got Egypt, you've got Babylon, you've got Persia. There's all kinds of places where God's people have been enslaved. And what they're thinking about here is more to do with a religious slavery of of they're not being forced to bow to the idols of false gods, but through the story of Israel, they gradually do that themselves. And this alternate history is a mechanism that is used for deception. To go back and do revisionist history it's a, a mechanism used in deception, and I think it's being widely used in our time. But that's not exactly what Jesus argues. He doesn't fight about, you know, hey, your time in Babylon, your time in Egypt. What he goes to instead is, is more of the spiritual element, which they're talking about. He says, you're more enslaved than what you know. Because anybody who practices sin is a slave to sin, that you're in bondage, you're trapped, you're in chains. And there's nothing that you can do to get out of it yourself. See, every human is, in fact, a slave to sin. And you need the son more than you can even imagine. He says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Your freedom rides on the work of the son. Now, Jesus is is helping us understand here something that, that even the Old Testament authors knew Uh, King David, for sure, in Psalm 51, 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're all born in sin, and because we're born in sin, that's the way our hearts are geared and gravitate towards, that we do sinful things. We practice sin. And we practice sin, we find ourselves to be a slave of sin, and we stay that way until Jesus frees us. That's the only place freedom comes from. No other religion, no other worldview, It can only be found in Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But here's the thing. This is how Jesus sets us free. He says, by faith, our faith is in Jesus, that we were crucified with Christ. So we were were buried with Christ. And we were raised with Christ. In Romans 6, verse 6 through 8, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
So what he's saying is in the death of Christ, the slavery that we were in to sin is broken. The chains are destroyed. And by his death, we are made free. Now, this is what Jesus says in verse 51, where he talks about, like, if you, uh, if you keep my words, you'll never see death. Because salvation is found in his name. And, and here, here's what it is. Not only a salvation that's future orientation, but even right now, a salvation, a freedom, where we no longer live by lies. But the, the light, the truth of Christ just saturates every aspect. But here's the interesting thing. It's the other bit of this discussion with the Jews that, that sort of spurs the rest of the contentious discussion that goes on even further. And it gets at the question of this. <clears throat> Who's your daddy? My kids have watched the Master of Disguise, and there's this clip in the movie like, Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? If you remember that. So that I'm probably going to have kids that slap each other the rest of the day soon. Who's your daddy? Uh, and this question actually is, who's your daddy? Who, who do you claim and who claims you? Who do you claim and who claims you? Because it can't be, it has to be both at the same time. If you claim him, then you must be claimed by him. Now they say they claim Abraham. He's, they say we're his offspring. Now that's true physically. They have Abraham's DNA in their blood, but it's not true spiritually. Paul makes this distinction in Romans chapter two. He says, for no one is a Jew or, or offspring of Abraham who is merely one outwardly or physically, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. He pray, uh, he, his praise is not from man, but from God. To be a, a, a true child of Abraham is a matter of faith. Galatians 3, 7 also backs this up. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, one of the things that this conversation reveals as it works itself out further is that your faith is revealed by your works. There's a connection between what you do and what you believe. And Jesus says this in verse 39. They answered, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. See that? The works. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, fa your father did. They said to him, we, we're not born of sexual immorality. So Jesus is saying like, hey, you don't really belong to Abraham. And they think he's talking physically here. Hey, we, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Here they are making a claim. Abraham's ours. God is ours. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I needed to figure out where I stopped. Okay, I think I got carried away. But you get the idea here. The works, you don't know. Like, he goes on to say further on, you do not even know Abraham. You don't even know God. And he points to what? Their works to prove it. Verse 55 but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. Jesus calling them liars. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
And Jesus, he's coming after him. He says, your father is the devil, and you do the things the devil does. Verse 44, your father is the devil, and you will do uh, all... And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. The first act in the garden was the act of murder. And does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is saying like, it's very clear where your heritage comes from. They aren't acting in faith, but out of Lies out of deception, so much so that like their father, the devil, they want to kill Jesus. And this is evidence because at the very end of this exchange, they pick up stones as if they're ready to kill him. Now, there's a section of this where we don't have time to unpack, but, but there's this going back and forth where it kind of turns into this playground argument of, of calling each other names. They, they, first, they say that Jesus, Jesus is uh, one born of sexual immorality, and then they say, well, you've got a demon. You're a Samaritan. You're a half-blood, and you've got a demon. And it goes from these name-calling accusations to escalate to attempted murder. What's driving that? What's the driving factor behind this trajectory? It's that the Jews were filled with envy. Mark 15.10 tells us that um, this is the middle of the the passion scene. For, um, it says, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Speaking of Jesus, out of envy is what led the Jews to betray Jesus and say, we need him dead. Envy is a powerful motivator. And in fact, it's one of the things that will destroy a church. Proverbs 27, 4, speaking of the, the, the power of it. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Or who can stand before envy? Envy has this, it's like a, it's like a play, it's like a, a bacteria or something, a mind virus that takes over and it makes you do crazy things. And I would say that if you were to go back through history, almost every atrocity, almost every single societal ill is connected to some kind of envy. It's a destructive life force. Jesus says, I've come to give you life, but envy wants to take it all away. Now, maybe it's because we're reading the, the Bible in a year and our plan took us through the first several chapters of, of Genesis, but I've never noticed this connection here uh, of envy between Jesus and the Pharisees um, picking up stones, and the story of Cain and Abel. You remember the story? Abel gives the first fruit to God, gives an honorable sacrifice, an honorable token of worship to God. His brother Cain kind of phones it in. And what happens is that God looks at Abel and says, hey, I'm pleased with your offering. Well, in that moment, what's God doing? He said, I've invited you to the table. I thank you for coming to me. I honor you. You've honored me. I bestow honor upon you. But Cain's left outside. Cain didn't get asked to come in because his, his offering was unpleasing to God. But what happens with Cain? What happens in his heart? Envy, that mind virus, takes over. Guess what he does? Picks up a stone and smashes his brother. In the same way that Cain used a stone to kill Abel, so the Pharisees are trying to do the same with Jesus. Now, what are they envious of? There's a lot of parallels here. To put it plainly, like, like Cain and Abel, the Jews are, are 
envious of Jesus' true claim as Jesus' son of God the Father. See, they're trying to make this claim based on physical blood, DNA. They say, hey, we, we got Abraham, he's our father. And if Abraham's our father, then God's our father. But, but what Jesus is saying, you don't know him. God isn't claiming you. So you can't make that claim. But Jesus, on the other hand, he says, I can make that. I am the son of God. I can make that claim. And so Jesus, in a sense, is telling them, because they are stuck in unbelief, they are outsiders. They, they are not invited to the table. God is not pleased with them. They are stuck in slavery to sin. Because if they were truly Jesus' disciples, they would abide in his word, and his word would be true, and his truth would set them free. But they're stuck. See, without this faith, without abiding in Jesus' words, these guys are not part of God's family. But here's the good news. Because every single one of us, if that's where the story ends, is like Jesus gets to claim God and nobody else does, that would be terrible news. But here's the good news. It's because Jesus had always abided in God's word. Because Jesus always perfectly obeyed. He always did what was good, right, and perfect according to God the Father. He is bestowed with honor. The name above every name. And because Jesus was willing to submit to his Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross, to redeem those who were trapped in sin, they were slaves of death, Jesus is exalted. And those who place their faith in him, God, by faith, grants us the ability to call him Father. He's put his spirit in us. Romans tells us he put his spirit in us. So now, by faith, we cry out, Abba, Father. We can make the claim that God, the true God, is our Father. Why? Because of faith in Jesus. We get adopted into God's family. And that is the only basis. Listen, unless your faith is in Jesus, unless you've been adopted into God's family, that's the only basis on which we can call ourselves children of God. And once we've received adoption by faith, once the family name has been applied to us, what happens? We live by faith. Say, by faith, for faith. To live by faith means we only have one master. We eject envy. We eject the suspicion that we have when it comes to God's word. And instead, we submit to our Lord Jesus Christ. We abide in his word. We say, hey, we're not putting on the yoke of slavery ever again but we are going to live as free men. Now, we can't do this perfectly. Listen, now you receive grace. You're still gonna sin. You're, you're still gonna have this temptation to put the sla- yoke of slavery back on and go back to your old ways. But the power of God working in us, because we have the spirit of God, he's working to transform us, to change us, so that no longer do we say yes to sin, but we say no to sin and yes to our Savior. And this is what it means to be true disciples saying yes to Jesus, every word. Jesus, you are the yes and amen. I believe you. I'm abiding in your word. And so my hope for us as a church is that more and more we would find ourselves as true disciples of Jesus that are trusting and obeying, that we are abiding and we're keeping his word and God would honor his promises and we would not taste death because we have a savior who has conquered death for us, who's broken the chains of sin and has freed us. 
Because Christ has died, let us live like free men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word of truth. It's eternal, never changes this world, but your word will always remain the same. We pray that you would help us to, to fix our feet in that word. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up in us a desire to do the good works which you saved us to do. That we would be like Abraham, um, children of God who walk and live by faith, that our works points to the reality of our faithfulness to the God who is faithful, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And this meal reminds us of that, that Jesus taking our, our sin upon himself, paying the price so that we could be forgiven. Lord, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. 